0: Buongiorno, everybody, and welcome. This is Identity Unlocked, and I'm your host, Vittorio Bertocci. Identity Unlocked is the podcast that discusses identity specs and trends from a developer perspective. Identity Unlocked is powered by Auth0. In this episode, we focus on the security BCP for auth to top. And our esteemed guest today is Daniel Fett, security specialist at YES.com and author of Keys IETF Specs. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, Vittorio. Thanks for joining me today. Can we start with how you ended up working in identity? Sure. So
1: I think that's actually quite a good question. So back in 2015, I was doing my PhD at the University of Stuttgart, Actually, Trier at that time, and then later I joined Stuttgart. And at that time, we were developing a technique for the formal analysis of web security. That is, use mathematical, logical approaches to security in order to, to analyze the security of protocols like TLS protocol, or in this case, web protocols. And one area that we found interesting is various kinds of authentication protocols. Do you remember Mozilla Browser ID? I do, I do. That was actually the first, the first research object for us. Um, we analyzed that and found various security bugs in there, but it was a really interesting system. And then, so we published two papers on that topic, and then another paper, but people kept asking, have you looked at OAuth yet? Every conference, when we presented something cool on the browser ID, they said, have you looked at OAuth? And, and we were like, no, not yet. In all honesty, we thought that OAuth would be boring. So in browser, you had post-message communication. You had various iframes and windows and so on. So it was really complicated and super interesting to analyze. And we thought, well, with, with OAuth, it's essentially to redirect. And I mean, what could go wrong there? You know? And there are so many researchers and so many papers on OAuth already. And we really like, we will not find anything interesting there. And, you know, if you want to publish a paper, you need to find something. And the best is, of course, if you find an attack. Yeah, so, and then, then we said, okay, let's do OAuth so that people stop asking us about WAR. Then we analyzed OAuth using our formal analysis technique. And actually we found several bugs there. Most of them were not that critical, but the mix-up attack was really interesting. Um, yeah, so we found the mix-up attack. And this is how we got in contact with the OAuth working group. At the ITF, we asked them whether they think this, this is a real problem. And they said yes. And they scrambled for an emergency meeting in Darmstadt, Germany. And there I got to learn all the people from the group. And yeah, so, so this, this is how, how all of this started for me.
0: That's nice. And so you ended up being hooked because now your name is on a number of specs. So clearly you liked what you found. And you are now a very active member of that community. That's right, yeah. Also, it's a
1: great community. So.
0: Oh, yeah. It's a nice cast of characters. And uh, speaking of which, one uh, question I ask uh, to all of our guests, given that we have uh, all been uh, in this space for a while, is uh, how you and I actually met. Like, do you remember how we met? I'm actually not so
1: sure when we met because you read the names on the mailing list, so, so the names are there already. I'm not sure when we met in person for the first time, but I think was it was in
0: Stuttgart. I believe that in person, we actually met for the first time in Stuttgart, yeah. Right. I think so as so, well, yeah. So that's, that's to to a really nice event. All right, fantastic. So we definitely have uh, the absolute best person to talk about the topic of the day, which is uh, the security BCP. So before we get into the meat of it, I'd like to ask you, what is a BCP document and how is that different from the core specification?
1: So to my understanding, sir, the best current practice document means that it document's not really a completely new approach or a new technique or, so to say, a new standard, but it says how to use standards and techniques in the best way possible or in the best way that is known today. That, to my understanding, is what a VCP should do. So it should tell you how to use something securely and in other ways that
0: I desire to do that today. I see. So it provides practices, as the name suggests, but doesn't necessarily override the core specification. As in, uh, it tells you what's the best way of using that specification, but doesn't really change. Like, uh, if you you are doing something different from that, uh, it's not like you lose uh, compliance. It's just that maybe it's not very wise, but you are still compliant as long as you follow the core.
1: So in our case, in the, in the OAuth case, we have the situation that OAuth really gives you a lot of flexibility. So you have many, many options to do things, some of which are documented in, in the original um, RC6749 and 6750. But out of all these, all of these options, we now know that some of them are not as secure as others. And there might be other things you need to be doing in order to, to have a secure implementation. And this is what we want to document in that.
0: So that's the goal of this BCP. So what's your involvement in that BCP? My involvement,
1: so I'm a co-author, Torsten is the editor, and since I started working on that document, which is, I don't know, I started two years ago or something like that, I moved through all the parts of the document and and proved it here and there. In the beginning, of course, my focus was on the attacks that we found back when I was at the university, but uh, in the meantime, I touched most of the parts of the document at some
0: point. Very nice. We are all very grateful that uh, you are working on that. And so my understanding of that is that it's a long laundry list of things, practices, things to do, things to avoid, and similar. It's a quite comprehensive document. So we won't have time to go through the entire thing today. But what I wanted to ask you is if you were to name the top three most impactful recommendations in the BCP, which one would those be?
1: Yeah, so as I said, there are a lot of recommendations in there, um, and we really try to, to cover all the aspects, but I think there are three very impactful uh, and very important things. The first one would be the recommend, co- recommendations to not use the implicit grant any longer. The second one would be if you use the authorization code grant, then you should also use Pixie. And the third one would be to use sender constraining for the access tokens when that is possible, or at least have some kind of uh, rotation for the refresh tokens. These, of course should also be sender constrained otherwise.
0: Oh, wow, was that a definitely big ones. Okay, so let's uh, pick all of those apart and see if we can understand what is the risk that people uh, incur If they don't follow the recommendation and what's the meat like what's the impact of a recommendation so the first one you mentioned is uh, the recommendation of stop using the implicit grant what are the problems with implicit grant yeah
1: so as you know the implicit grant means that in all the authorization server creates the access token and sends it to the browser that requested the access token, so to say. This is a pattern that you would usually use in a single page application. And traditionally, this would be the only pattern available for a single page application because when OAuth was written, things like cross-origin resource sharing were not a thing. So the authorization server had to send the access token directly to the browser, if you want to use the access token in the browser.
0: And with directly, you mean from the authorization endpoint and by placing it uh, in the URL somehow.
1: Exactly. So the authorization server, so after the user authorizes the application to access our data, the authorization server would just send a URL to the browser where the access token is contained in the URL. So with the, with the experience that we now have, we saw that there are several problems with that from a security standpoint. Of course, from the usability standpoint, I would say it's fine, but from a security standpoint, uh, there are several problems. So the first thing, first thing is that whether you need the access token actually in the browser or not, you will have the access token in the browser. So there are several applications where the access token is not actually needed in the browser. So the application would just uh, or the browser would just send the access token back to the server of the client. Nonetheless, you will end up with the access token in the browser. And when the access token is in the browser, it's susceptible to things like cross-site scripting, our favorite uh, (laughs) web security problem, which has still not gone away. So you have have this really powerful token in the browser, and I I think that's just not a good place for it.
0: This one is going to be controversial, I'm telling you, because many developers do like to get an access token in JavaScript. And although as security people, we prefer that not to happen, the reality is that so many applications do require that. And so we tell them that the implicit is an insecure way of delivering that access token in there. Instead, there are better ways of doing that. Because like, uh, I agree with you, of course, that having the access token in the browser is less than ideal from a security perspective, but we need to face the fact that people need it. And so the best we can do is to give them a way to deliver the token in a more secure way, right?
1: Yeah, and that brings us to, to another problem with the uh, implicit flow, and that is that the access token is delivered in the URL to the browser. And that is the cause for many troubles. For example, uh, so URLs are just not a good way to, to have any, anything secreted. For example, URLs end up in your web browser history. On mobile devices, they can be locked as well. They might end up in web proxies on either side of the connection, of course. And of course, the topic will all, if you have a redirection that doesn't go to the intended receiver, but somewhere else, and we still see these kinds of problems quite often, then the access token ends up at some other place. So at attacker.com instead of your Right, the referral header. Yeah, and you have the referral header. So there are just so many ways that things from URLs can leak. And this is really why you should use the authorization code flow instead. Because with the authorization code flow, you just have this authorization code in the URL. Still a secret, it's still in the URL, but it's short-lived, and you can can do just many other things to protect this authorization code against misuse.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And uh, I liked what you said earlier, that uh, when the implicit flow was first uh, conceived, the, the use of cores wasn't particularly uh, widespread and you do need calls in order to do the authorization code flow from the browser, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Because you need to do the backend call. So the application in the browser gets the authorization code and then has to call the token endpoint at a maybe completely different origin to uh, exchange the authorization code for the access token.
0: That's great. Perfect. So that's really useful. And one thing that, uh, I think it's useful to clarify: is uh, out there, there are tens of thousands of applications using the implicit flow today, and uh, clearly, it's not great. But at the same time, I guess that uh, we are not telling people that we found the new vulnerabilities and they need to drop everything they have uh, and move to the new system, right? Like this is more of like a best practice, but uh, it's no reason to panic for people that are already using uh, the implicit flow. And uh, taking steps to mitigate their biggest uh, its biggest issues. That's right.
1: So this is not a new security flaw, as you said, but it's just that we we found that is this is a repeated source of problems. If you have a secure application, chances are that you are not directly affected by this. But of course, it's it's not. There's no real defense in depth. So if the URL leaks, somebody else gets the access token. It's game over. You can try to protect against that, Um, many websites do so very successfully, but we've just seen that there's no second layer of defense there. And we've seen that OAuth, so in the beginning it was conceived for, let's say, social media applications or something like that, maybe for your company's login or something, but um, these are not real, depending on how exactly you use it, these are not real high-stakes environments. But now we see OAuth being used for financial transactions. We, uh, see, we see it being used for so many applications just that uh, we didn't even think about back when it was standardized that you now need more than just one layer of security. So you really don't, if, if, you're, if you're talking about financial transactions, if a bank transfer depends on the access token. You really don't want it to be leaked somewhere else because of some cross-site scripting in application or something like
0: that. makes complete sense. So defense in depth, definitely for new apps, uh, you want people to use uh, a new practice and not uh, build instant legacy. And for high value transactions, this is a good defense in depth. Fantastic. That's great. Very last thing I want to mention because it's a totally a pet peeve of mine. When people say implicit, they just put everything in a semicolon. And uh, all the scenarios that we described are implicit in which the token ends up uh, in the URL, which are all super bad. There is one scenario where implicit is used, uh, where uh, uh, instead things appear to be still okay. And that's when uh, people do OpenID Connect uh, with a form post, which basically they use OpenID Connect just like SAML, in which instead of using the back channel, you send the token using a post. Those flows are still okay and not touched by this recommendation, correct?
1: Well, the access token doesn't end up in the URL then. So you already exclude many of the um, problems that we are, well, essentially the main problems that we see with the implicit grant.
0: Yeah, there is only the, impl- only the ID token and only in the post, so no URLs. Okay, perfect, good. Because, okay, here, I just wanted to make sure I clarify, because uh, a lot of uh, people that are not familiar with this space as soon as they hear implicit has been deprecated, they uh, immediately also worry about that flow. And instead, uh, I think it's important to clarify that part. Fantastic, great, thank you. This was the best explanation I heard uh, so far about why implicit uh, shouldn't be used. So what was the second item in your list?
1: Second item would be proof key of code exchange or Pixie. That's RC7636. And that was something when I first read it. It was like, mm, yeah, okay, nice. And um, nowadays, I would say it's really um, a
0: must-have for, for any, at least for any new implementation of both. So the recommendation here in the in the BCP is uh, wherever you use uh, an authorization code grant, you should use Pixie. Which uh, my understanding is. Uh, different from what was the original scope of Pixie, which was specifically for single-page apps or similar. So tell me a bit more about what Pixie does and why it's a good idea to use it absolutely everywhere now. Yeah. So
1: originally, Pixie was intended just for public clients. And the idea there is that you like to protect the authorization code. So when the authorization code goes and you know, as I said, that this authorization code comes back from the authorization server to the user's browser in a URL. And as we saw before, URLs can leak in various places. So we'd like to protect that code. We'd like to ensure that not anybody can use that code and just go to the token endpoint and exchange it for the access token because otherwise we wouldn't gain any security. here.
0: And now I'm remembering, I remember the first time I heard about that was uh, when there was this big push for uh, native clients to start using the system browser instead of the embedded browser. And then now you had the problem that uh, you had the code that was acquired by the system browser and then had to come back to your app as opposed to be everything in the embedded browser. And so now there was the opportunity of a, a rogue app to inject itself between the system browser and your target app and steal the code. That was the the main scenario back in the day.
1: Exactly. And if you look at this closely, it's just one other way how this authorization response can be. This is also really important. Yeah.
0: I see. And so now we want to use it everywhere. So this scenario that I just described, I understand uh, why it's useful, because like, you could have this app that gets in the middle. But what about uh, all the other scenarios? Like, uh, I don't know, for example, say that I am a website, a confidential client and I'm using the authorization code flow for making a call to an API from my backend code. How does Pixie help in that scenario? So
1: for a long time, the assumption was that if you steal a code that is bound to a confidential client, nobody will be able to use that code. Because, of course, if, if you have a code that is bound to a confidential client, you can't just take the code as an attacker and go to the token endpoint, and send the code and get the token, because you would need to authenticate yourself to the token endpoint. So that was the assumption. And one of the takeaways of our MixUp attack was that this assumption is not correct. Because what you can do is, if you have this code, you can, as an attacker, so I'm speaking as the attacker, I I have stolen an authorization code for a confidential client from somewhere else. And what I can do is a so-called code injection tag. So I go to the same client, assuming that's a website, and I just start a new OAuth flow with the same client and the same authorization server. And what I can then do is then when the... So I I go through the first steps of the flow until I get to the authorization response. And in the authorization response, which now contains a code that is um, bound to my my account at the authorization server, I exchange the code. I take away the code that was uh, issued for my account, and I fill in there the, the code that I stole from my victim. So I send the code that I stole in the authorization response to the original client. And the original client will now exchange that code for me at the token endpoint.
0: Wow, that's bad.
1: Yeah. So this is, this is the, so, so now I have a client that is under my control because it's my session that uses the authorization code or the, the access token that was bound to that authorization code and that I stole from somewhere else. This is the, the code injection attack.
0: Wow, that's powerful. And of course, the Pixie defeats this attack, right?
1: Exactly, and that's the point. So with Pixie, the client for each run will invent a new code challenge or code verifier and will only accept a code that is bound to the same code challenge. That means that if I now try to inject another code, it will not be bound to the correct code challenge.
0: Nice. That's great. That's a great, um, excellent reason for using uh, Pixie and server-side flows as well. That's great. So now I'm going to touch on something that has been very controversial on the IETF mailing list, and you already know what I'm referring to, which is... Uh, if my system is not pure off, but I am uh, implementing OpenID Connect, and uh, I'm doing an authorization code flow, or a hybrid flow, anything that uh, deals with codes and similar, and I'm using nonce should I change my system to also support Pixie? Or uh, is nonce enough? Um, what do you think?
1: So, in fact, nonce works in a similar way as Pixie. So you can actually use nonce to some extent in place of Pixie. There are some, some caveats to this. So you need to be, be careful that you have a confidential client, actually. For public clients, this doesn't work. That's not secure. But if you have a confidential client, you actually get a similar level of security. Nonetheless, I would recommend to use Pixie in new deployments, at least all the time, because then it's easier to, yeah, to, to enforce it. As an authorization server, you can just check that Pixie is used all the time. And there's also an attack that I discovered where you might be able to trick an authorization server into accepting a code that was bound with Pixie in a flow where it's not expecting Pixie. So you can just exfiltrate a code from one flow and use it in another flow. And that only happens if the author- the same authorization server accepts flows or supports flows with and without Pixie. So
0: at the authorization server, you really need to, need to make sure to enforce it all the time. I see. So the idea is uh, Pixie in general gives you better coverage. And uh, if everyone would uh, enforce Pixie all the time, then uh, these kinds of attacks would go away. And so for the people that today are already supporting uh, NONCE, they seem to be more or less covered for that part. But for all the new work, uh, like the, the BCP is just going to recommend uh, blanket support for Pixie absolutely everywhere.
1: We're going to support that, yeah. And we say that if you want to actually use NONCE, then you really need to be or make sure that nonce is actually used by the client and also checked by the client. This is an important point because nonce has to be checked on the client. And we have seen that clients are often not as good implemented as authorization servers are. So as an authorization server, you really should make sure, or as an ecosystem, you need to make sure that nonce is actually checked at the client.
0: That's an excellent point. Like you, at this point, if you do the nonce, you are also trusting that the client has been implemented in the right way. And uh, as a provider, is hard to ensure that you kind of need to trust them. So that's an excellent point. Uh was There was one last thing. That, uh, ah, yes. If we use uh, Pixie, now we can uh, basically stop using uh, the state as uh, the mechanism for protecting ourselves from cross-site scripting. So now, uh, basically, I no longer need uh, to put anything unique in the state and I can use the state just for... Uh, remembering stuff between calls, right?
1: Yeah, that's something that we also have in the security PCP now, because we noticed that if you use Pixie, it's, it really has all the functionality that you get with the state, with one exception, that is error messages. So if you get back an, an error message from the authorization server, Pixie just doesn't cover it, so there's no CSF support for error messages. I don't think that this is a big problem, so at least I... Couldn't come up with any kind of attack except for maybe disrupting the user flow there. But this is something you should know. So except for the error responses, you get the same coverage for CSF with Pixie. And it's easier to use, I think, because you need to use it anyway. So you don't need to come up with a separate state. And yeah, state cannot be used for essentially anything you like. Of course, you need to keep in mind that state is not integrity protected. So you don't really know whether it's the state you... So when you send the state to the server and you get back another value, you don't know whether it's actually the same state that you sent before or not.
0: I see. So basically, if you want it integrity protected, you've got to do it on your own. As in, what you place in there, you've got to sign it in your own way. And it's outside of a protocol. Fantastic. This is great. And in fact, uh, it's so great that we are running out of time. So. Let's go to the last point, which you mentioned was uh, sender constraint. So what's the recommendation that the BCP does around sender constraint? So
1: on a high level, sender constraint your tokens. That is, the access token, and depending on how you use it also, the refresh token should be bound to one party. That is the client that is supposed to use the token. This is is the, the big picture.
0: I see. And then uh, here, when, um, when we say sender constraint, in practice, what do we mean, really? There are two
1: practical ways to do that right now. The one would be to use MTLS, so mutual TLS. That means that the client comes up with a certificate that doesn't need to be from some certificate authority. It can just be a self-signed certificate. And on the TLS connection to the token endpoint, the client uses that certificate to authenticate itself to the Authorization server. And then later on, when the client wants to use the access token, so the authorization server binds the access token to the public key of that certificate. And later on, when the client wants to use the access token, it has to present the same certificate and, of course, prove that it owns the private key on a, on the next TLS connection, so to say.
0: Great. So if someone steals the access token, but they don't have that certificate, they just cannot use it. So we defeat the usual uh, better token vulnerability
1: exactly. And uh, this also means that So, if you, if you use MTLS, you really take this proof that you are the rightful owner of the access token or user of the access token, you take it uh, out of the application layer to some extent, which depending on the application might made, make it harder or easier to use. But I think it's an interesting approach. If you want to do it on the application layer,
0: there's a specification called EPOP, demonstrating proof of procession. Yeah, we had one entire episode with uh, Brian Campbell all about Depop. So I'd encourage our listeners to go and uh, endure 30 minutes of uh, me chatting with Brian about it. <laughs> <laughs> great. And uh, you also had a very important part on the Depop spec, right? I think I'm the editor of the Depop spec, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> it doesn't get more important than that. Okay, great. Fantastic. And uh, this one is for uh, public clients. For confidential clients, we have uh, other tricks for doing sender constraints, right?
1: Yeah, especially for the refresh token. The refresh token is already bound to one specific sender. So the sender has to authenticate itself at the token endpoint. So essentially, we have all of this functionality already. So
0: So for refresh tokens, uh, you don't need to use either MTLS or for refresh tokens when you are a confidential client. The fact that you have to use your credentials is enough. Exactly. Yeah, you get the same kind of security there. That's great. So the the tricky part of this uh, part of our recommendation is that today, mTLS and DPoP are not particularly available in uh, public implementations, right?
1: Yeah. So both of them means that you will have to use some crypto on the client, so it might be hard or impossible to. to Put this stuff into your TLS layer. Depending on your environment, it might be hard to sign something. So another method that you can use is a refresh token rotation, where once a refresh token was used, you or the authorization server issues a new refresh token to the client. And the nice thing is that if somebody is able to exfiltrate a refresh token and that somebody uses the, the refresh token, this means that the same refresh token will be used twice at the authorization server. In any case, so whether the attacker uses the refresh token first, after the uh, for, before the legitimate user, or afterwards, it doesn't matter the authorization server sees the same token twice and can then essentially remove all the tokens that have been issued in the whole process. So the access token, all the refresh tokens, and so on. So it can cancel essentially the whole flow, and this makes
0: this somewhat secure. That's really powerful. And that's also the thing that makes it OK to use a refresh token in the browser. Because uh, I remember when I had less white in my beard, that using a refresh token inside of the browser was one of the things that we had to stop people from doing because uh, it was, oh, no, 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 absolutely blasphemy, too dangerous. But now that instead we can do rotation, we are kind of OK with people doing that, right?
1: I mean, rotation is not really a new thing. We can now do it if you have the authorization code flow and cost in the browser and so on. And and it can be tricky. You have the problem that if a request doesn't arrive at the authorization server, or you think that a request didn't arrive at the authorization server, and then you send the same request again with the same refresh token, you're essentially acting the same way as the attacker would do. I'm not sure whether this or how big this problem is in practice. So you might want to look into deeper.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that is definitely messy. The other thing is that uh, when you introduce uh, the rotation, then uh, there is a new class of uh, errors that you need to deal with. Like uh, if uh, you correctly redeem your uh, refresh token at N, but you fail to receive uh, N plus one. Now, next time you try like you'll be stuck because you don't have any tokens and all the token no longer works. So that's why I guess that uh, this is a opt-in feature for many. Like if you look at many practical implementations, they don't have it on by default.
1: I would hope that we see essentially, yeah, Depop and these libraries more
0: often. So Depop doesn't suffer from this kind of uh, from this kind of shortcomings. Exactly.
1: So with Depop essentially you just sign your requests with the same key all the time, um, but of course you generate. Yeah, or an attacker that would exfiltrate the refresh token or the access token would not be able to do the same.
0: That's great. So basically, this last uh, recommendation we are mentioning, which is uh, use uh, sender constraint wherever possible, it's something that will probably come to fruition in practice once uh, more implementations will start to support uh, the necessary components uh, such as uh, VBOP. Yeah.
1: Exactly. I think uh, the Pixie and, of course, the authorization curve flow are already widely supported. Sender constraining is a bit more
0: exotic. that makes sense. Oh, that's great because, like, uh, sometimes people that are not used uh, to the language used in those specs, they look at it and they they really want to comply as much as possible. But then uh, they do their Google searches and find out that uh, yeah, some parts are not doable. And so I think it's important to set uh, expectations. And I think that. Uh, In the last 30 minutes, you did a beautiful job in uh, making the content of those very important recommendations accessible to everyone. So I want to thank you for your time. It was really, really interesting. And I hope I'll have uh, opportunities uh, for you to come back on the show and uh, perhaps cover some of the other things that you are uh, working on. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And until next time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app or at identityunlocked.com. Until next time, I'm Vittorio Bertocci, and this is Identity Unlocked. music for this podcast, composed and performed by Marcelo Walowski. Identity Unlocked is powered by Of Zero.